you, you motherfucks. You want to know what we fucking watched? You asking what the fuck we watched, you motherfuck? We fucking watched Casino. We are the film fellas. We watch movies you love, hate, or have never heard of, and then we talk about them. I'm Greg, and I can leap higher than a speeding locomotive. I'm Nick, and physical therapy's tiring. I'm Caleb, and I cannot yodel. I'm Robbie, and I'm cashing in my chips for Casino. Let's get into it. This is one of my favorite films from when I was younger. It's a very good Scorsese film. But more than that, it's because the writing and the themes are so strong. And it has some of the best flawed lead characters who show off that they aren't necessarily good people, but you still root for them without relying on cheap tricks, with a few exceptions. Scorsese is a big fan of that. Yep, yep. I love his films, but Casino, (laughs) in my opinion, Casino is probably his best. All right, Robbie, I'm going to let you take over. Go ahead. So for the one-sentence summary, for this film, I have Shakespeare meets with Goodfellas in the Vegas Strip. A solid one, to be sure. And Caleb. I'll go next. Okay. Hey, you see Johnny Lemon over there? It's his job to watch Scotty Sanfilippo. Now it's Scotty's job to make sure the floor managers are on the level, especially Shifty Steve. I don't know why, but I don't trust that guy. Shifty Steve is keeping an eye on the pit bosses, like Luciano. That kid's been skipping me for weeks. I just know it. The pit bosses need to watch the dealers who need to watch the players. And of course, I got several players in my pocket. They're my boys. I got them watching Johnny Lemon, who's overwatching Scotty. Also, who am I talking to? (laughs) That was a good run-on sentence. (laughs) There's a lot of commas in that sentence. There is. (laughs) Only one semicolon. Nick, why don't you go next? If anyone asks you or asks you in the back of a casino... Which hand is your dominant hand? Say the other one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Good advice. And mine is, I am not throwing away my shot in Las Vegas. (laughs) Very nice. I like those ones. So let's get into the summary. It is quick a time as we can. Robbie, you start us off. All right, so first off, you got Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci playing your main characters of Sam Rothstein and Nicky Santoro. And together, they are two of the main three that we're going to be looking at in the film. So you start off, they're both mafiosos, and they're told by the mob, hey, we're sending you down there over into Vegas, and you're going to set up the casino. Not only are you going to do that, but we're going to take a little bit off the side, and as long as you do what we tell you to, you're going to be golden. And so what starts is they get there down to Vegas, And Sam Rothstein, a cool, calculated man, decides that he's going to try and make everything in his image and control everything going on the ground. Meanwhile, Nicky, who's your typical gangster, just wants to knock over the joint, take his money, take his things, and get everything in Vegas for him and him alone. However, things are complicated when he makes the girl of his dreams. Fellas. So Sam ends up falling in love with this girl who's hustling the casino named Ginger. Yes. Joe Pesci ends up getting blacklisted from the casinos because he's running a bunch of scams, but has gotten caught at all of them. So he's with their, up there with Al Capone. He gets kicked out of every casino. That's a no-go, which ends up starting turmoil between him and Sam. That was...
So Sam is trying to run a legitimate business, but he's not above doing some sketchy stuff. Like he catches these cheaters and uh, he takes them in the back and he asks them, what is your dominant hand? I saw you playing with this hand. Is this your dominant hand? And he goes, yeah. And he smashes it with a hammer and he brings up the other guy and he goes, look, you can either keep the money and lose the hand or you can walk out with no money. And the guy's like, I just want to get out of here. So he's not above a little bit of extortion. But he keeps the casino running tight until he runs into this hustler, this gorgeous blonde hustler who's running through casinos. Her name is Ginger. And he, it is love at first sight. He's like, I got to have this chick, even though I know it's bad for me. But I got to have her, fellas. Yeah, so with the two of them eventually get married, pretty much uh, against Ace's better nature and better wisdom, because Ginger is still pretty chummy with her old pimp, Lester. And one day, Ace catches Ginger slipping 25 grand over to Lester. So Ace roughs him up real, real old mobster style, which starts Ginger on a spiral downswing. She starts to hate and resent Ace. So she goes over to Nikki, basically like, oh, he's such a monster. I hate him. And Nikki is in a complete reversal of his usual personality. Is very comforting, very, oh, it's going to be all right. I'll talk to him. And then he barely does. Meanwhile, Ace is trying to get a permit to run a casino because he's being leveraged by the government for firing one of uh, a slot machine manager, I suppose. Yeah, so he fires a slot machine manager who works for the government. Now the government, local government is like, well, does he have a license? No. Well, let's pressure him. And so it's very widely known that Ace and Nikki are very good friends. And fellas. So, Nikki and Ace have been combined together as far as the media is concerned, and one can't say anything without the other being implicated. And this is not good for the guys back home who are like, why on earth are these two causing waves? All they need to do is shut their mouths and collect the money. I don't see what's going wrong. So they decide that they're going to try and poke in a little bit and tell them, hey, knock it off, be better. However, that's not what happens. In fact, each of them decide of Ginger, Nick, and Ace to try and overturn the others in a game of 40 chess that ends up actually tanking them all. In fact, Ginger herself goes into a spiral of alcohol, depression, and drugs and starts trying to actually figure out how to kill Ace in the background of what's going on as things start to slowly implode. Fellas. At this point, Nikki is being investigated by the FBI. So he counters the FBI by becoming the FBI and starts planning more bugs in everyone else's area in order to spy on the FBI. With the turmoil going on with Ginger and Sam, Ginger ends up leaning on Nick, or Joe Pesci's character, and ends up sleeping with him. Ooh, it gets spicy. And then she starts sleeping with the entire gang of Joe Pesci's area. And then Sam finds out, and he's like, the heck? But he has to let her keep doing it in order to keep them all quiet and not turning on them. Bellas. The mob bosses back home are like, what's going on? Is the little guy fucking the Robert De Niro's wife? And they're like, I don't know. I ain't heard nothing, you know, because nobody wants to get whacked. And Nikki really wants to get rid of Ace. But since he's making so much money for the bosses, they can't. Uh, they're like, we're not going to let you kill anybody. We need him. He's, he's, our, he's making all the money. We need to keep him. So he does an illegal hit where he set the bomb in his car. But luckily, the wiring was bad, and there was a special defect where there was a metal plate in the seat of that particular model of car. And so when the car blows up, when he turns on the ignition, it doesn't get him, and it misfires a little bit, and he jumps out, and the car explodes, and fellas. Yeah, so by this time, the FBI has all the information they need from spying on Nikki, Ace, and Ginger. 
And so people are getting whacked left and right. People are getting nabbed by the FBI, the bosses back home are whacking everyone else. Nikki and his brother Dominic get buried alive. Ginger just pretty much dies from overconsumption and a, a, a hot dose, I believe they called it. Uh, and then Ace ends up back where he started, betting on, betting on horses, betting on sports. And that's about all you can say about that. All right, Robbie, it's your show. What do you want to talk about? All right, so I would love to talk about the themes and the characterizations. But first, I want to just find out what was your guys' favorite parts, and then I'll tell you what my two favorite parts are. Caleb. I would like to royally disrespect you and say that my favorite part is, look how many blueberries you have in your muffin. Look how many blueberries I have in my muffin. This is despicable. I, oh, you have a note about that. I was hoping that like Robbie would like want to talk about like the Shakespearean tragedy, and I would be like, oh, my favorite part was the blueberry muffin. But no, it's a good part. <laughs> it, it's a great part. Yeah, so my favorite part was the blueberry muffin bit. For everybody at home, I, act, I just showed them a picture of my notes, which literally just has blueberry scene with exclamation marks and underlines multiple times. <laughs> Next week, I'll get you. <laughs> All right, Nick? I have two that are very close to each other as how I enjoyed them. One was just like um, De Niro's cigarette throw out when he goes to the hand scene. He walks up and just without even a blink of an eye, keeps looking forward and just drops it, but like right out of frame. It just looked really, looked really clean. And then the fact that Ginger's boyfriend was wearing a Gucci coat when he died. <laughs> That's how he wanted to go. Yeah, go in Gucci. Uh, my favorite part, as with all Scorsese movies, is just like the camera work. The man knows how to move his camera in a scene. It's so good. And if it wants, it's going to be anything specific, I really like that Ace's daughter was just really, really knew how to annoy Lester, the pimp boyfriend. <laughs> and made some good up. background comedy. You shut up. <laughs> so my favorite part is, there's a couple of them. I really like that blueberry scene just because it encapsulates so much of what's important about his character. The equal amount of blueberries in every muffin. Do you know how amount. long that will take? <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> and the, the delivery of the cook is just perfect. He's just like, do you know how long that will take? <laughs> it, it's great. One of my favorite was already kind of, we already kind of went over it, but it was the voices, the voiceover when it was talking about who watches who. And it's just great. You know, it's the dealers watching the players and the floor bosses watching the pit bosses. All that is great. And the cinematography for that is wonderful because just the camera going quick pan like this guy, no, this guy this guy and up to the camera where everybody's watching and um it's really solid i love the introductory scenes of each of the characters but the other favorite part is ginger's opening that was just it was iconic the music cue was great sharon stone rocked that movie it was great so robbie you like the introductory scenes i did so the first hour of this movie is just your jam it is, actually, because the first hour is basically just introducing people. Also, can I just say that a, a character that I think is very uh, uh, under-noticed and appreciated that I love is Mr. Green. He's great. I just love him. He's the perfect oh. patsy that just goes wrong. Kevin Pollack, uh, yeah. Kevin Pollack, yeah. He's great. He's a, he's a pretty good actor, pretty funny comedian. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to jump uh, in with another character before you go. 
the first I called him Gambly Boy, but the first mob boss who talks to Ace and then immediately talks to Nikki, like keep an eye on him. I couldn't understand half of what that man said because of his like yeah. Some of these actors yeah, just go so hard into being booth and you can understand. It's like they get paid for that. And it's insane. But they're scary too. Another scene I really enjoyed is the mob boss or the mob character who works out of his mom's store. <laughs> he basically gives away the whole mob as he the store's plugged and he's just like, Oh, I can't believe these motherfuckers and she's like, Hey, no cursing in the store. Sorry, Ma <laughs> it's Like, sorry, Ma, I'm all upset. Just, well I understand, but you better. Going off about all of this classified stuff. <laughs> without a care in the world and just talking and his mom's like hey it's not really good. Uh, and th- that character is basically a one for one with the actual guy who was upset that he wasn't getting paid correctly so yeah he kept com- this was absolutely real he kept complete transactions complete with names and addresses so he could try to blackmail them later which ended up being the key piece all because this dude was like I'm not getting my extra thousand a month what's, what's going on <laughs> The entire thing crumbles for it. And the mom was played by Scorsese's actual mother. Oh, really? Yeah, really. Now I want to know if that was her sauce, too. It generally is. (laughs) Specifically in Goodfellas, they're like, I need my mom to make the sauce because she's the only one that can make the the right kind of sauce. (laughs) They cut it thinly with a razor blade. Yep. Mm. And uh, I assume this one, she made the sauce because she's good at making the sauce. It's the kind of sauce that puts all four fingers together at a single point like Italians do. When they describe the sauce. (laughs) (laughs) That's where the chef's kiss originated. Getting it off your four fingers. (laughs) I love um, how some of the scenes are pretty comical with the way they portrayed the actions going on. Like specifically when he's doing cocaine and it threw a straw and it was like a vacuum just like sucking it up. Mm, yeah that shot where like, like, yeah. mm-hmm. I always found that like easily in like comedies people do that because like they show how long they're going on the cocaine <laughs> like yeah. this line goes across the entire table <laughs> just shows the exuberant amount of cocaine these guys are doing now who's your guys' least favorite character in the show uh ginger ah least yeah, favorite that's right. I said it least favorite as a character or least favorite in the story Let's go. Let's go story, and because okay. when we get into themes, we'll talk about character writing. To say as a character, it's probably Lester because that guy's a piece of shit. Oh yeah. But for the story, probably the guy who was connected to the local government, who was watching the machines, and who was just so dumb. Like, oh, I didn't think that there the three hits in twenty minutes. I, I didn't think it was anything weird. It's a casino. Somebody's got to win. <laughs> <laughs> like, do you know what the odds of that are? It's in the billions. <laughs> no, it's like, I think my least favorite character as far as, like, story presence and stuff goes, Nikki. And, uh, like, I'll, I'll have some support for that later because I know that he's, everyone loves, you know, Joe Pesci in any of his movies. But this character I just don't think was written as well as it could be. And also he's one of the characters that wasn't actually based on a person. He was an amalgamation of the different mobsters at the time. Like they had several people out there that were dealing with the actual guy who was in the area and they just kind of combined them into Nikki. I mean, he's mostly based on a single one of them, but a lot of his traits are supposed to be kind of 
you know, all of them together. And so he just comes off kind of as a generic mobster rather than like a rounded character as much as the other two. Yeah, I can see yeah. that. So if you're talking like my least favorite character from a character or a story standpoint, what does that mean? Like, I don't like the way their character was written or I don't like them, how they fit in the story or what? I mean, I think Greg was the one who mentioned it, but I think what Greg means is like character is based on like what, what the type, you know, how they are and how they operate, like their personal story. Whereas mm -hmm. uh, the, they're building the story is like how it interacts with the story as a whole. Like, it's narrative purpose. Okay, so how they're written versus how they uh, interact with the story. Well, then I can't say Ginger because yeah. I, I only didn't well, no, like he's Ginger. Said Nikki, so that's I guess that is out the window. Yeah. So I mean, like, so then yeah, Ginger, because just I mean, her role in the story is aside. Just the whole t like from the second third on, I was just, what are you doing? She needs to get some help. Goodness. Mm -hmm. and, and then. You know, oh, I yes. think everything is everything is pretty well justified, but like you know, she just kept going, kept pressing down the gas until she crashed, and, and her body was just destroyed from all these booze and drugs. And I, I mean, yeah. it was a lot of it's, a lot of rough choices there. That's really clear from the scene when she comes home in the morning, just out of her mind drunken on drugs and she called like the cops get called and she's like he won't let me into the house and he's like mm -hmm. i'm just standing here and it's like i need to get my stuff and it's like all right you know she's just tearing through the house she's driving a crashed car the downward spiral is so mm -hmm. yeah it, it is a masterful performance to be sure like oh yeah that scene where ace is like where'd you go i went to lunch with jennifer oh yeah what you have I had a salad. Well, what did Jennifer have? She had the same. I was like, well, maybe she did go with Jennifer before she went to me. <laughs> you know, it's just like that kind of convincing where they've convinced themselves. Uh, that then, line. Yeah. And then, but, you know, Ace always calls her on it, and then she's really bad at covering up from then on. But that first attempt is solid. What I really liked about it, because in, in my opinion, Sharon Stone stole the show. Hey, I can say it. The Sharon Stone stole the show every time she walked out onto the set. I mean, she just commanded with that performance. She definitely deserved the awards that she got, but I could honestly believe watching that. I'm like, whoa, this lady's crazy. Like, she is going, she is on a bender. She's going nuts. It was so realistic at times. And like I said, I'll, like when we hit the, the themes, I'm ready to gush over those things, but that was something that really caught my eye was the level of acting from almost all of the actors in this film was exquisite. Yeah, she really committed to that role. There's a scene where she's in bed and she's like, oh, her legs are so beat up just mm -hmm. from falling down. Oh, it's crazy. Nick! So Miley's favorite character was Ace's daughter because she was way too calm when he came in and she was tied up to her own bed. You're gonna be, uh -huh. if you're a kid, you're freaking out. Like, I'm gonna die. But she's like, help, who did this? Oh, it was mom. While she's just dangling. Uh -huh. Get a better child actor for that. Come on. <laughs> Jesus. I mean, maybe that's not the first time that's happened to her. That's yeah, what I, I was I thinking. Think it could be. But like, and, uh, yikes. 
as a person who's you know studied some child psychology and the liberal studies that's what you do you find out that like you know like movies where they have a baby with them and the baby stays quiet through all of that that means that baby's going to grow up to be a sociopath if not something way worse like they are unable to process anything so the fact that like amy is just so quiet and just so like passive and and reticent with whatever's thrust upon her she's going to be messed up mm-hmm. oh she's broken like that home life and again it goes into cuz in my opinion because i always take the weird psychological angles of the writing but i think that that this really explores the different types of sociopathy in our three main characters in different ways based on different types of greed and stuff but like definitely in that sort of situation growing up with those two parents with what's going on that kid's going to have problems mm. i would be shocked if they didn't i wanted to follow up on nikki's kid cuz he looked like he was a good dad yeah. but then he's just gone and i never get to see if that kid's like learns about his dad's past or it's just like no yeah papa it's like Nikki would be out murdering all night, but he would always come home and make breakfast for Nikki Jr. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, Nikki tell him about heart disease. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what a yeah. smart kid. That's one of the faults in the writing, I think, as far as that goes, because he's just basically a morality pet. That's the, the only operation that Nikki Jr. serves is. But he's not all bad. He's also a good father, and we never hear from him again. It's like two mentions. One, he does baseball. Two, he always comes home after killing people to make breakfast. And that's all we ever see of his son. Never comes up that's again. That's the same with his naturally. wife, who is slightly more prevalent, but she's in like three scenes. Mm-hmm. And is really just yeah, there to be like, he has this home life. and He's not just out beating people in the street, but. Y'all, Which would be, be so- honest. Go ahead, Nick. Or uh, Robbie. Let's uh, talk about Nicky. It, it, it wouldn't be so bad if it wasn't for the fact that the other two had were so much better written that it makes it bad by comparison's sake. It's not necessarily a horrible story. We see it all the time where we get characters that have like, oh, he's a hor- you know, he's a horrible person, but he has a good wife, he has a good child, you know, he's a great father or he's a great pet owner and we never see it again. And we kind of hand wave it's like, oh okay, they're getting a little bit of characterization. It's fine. But in writing of this level and at this competency, it just glows like, ooh, you could have done a lot better with that than just the, but he's a good dad trope. I think that there's just so much to this story that even as long as it is, it would have been so much longer had they got into the weeds of all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm kind of glad that they didn't, even though I got to say like about an hour and a half, maybe hour 45 in, I forgot that Nikki was married and he had a son. But that's just not the priority of the story. You know, it's not really Nikki's story. It's more aces and gingers. So I'm fine that they add a little bit of context to Nikki's actions and then go no further. Yeah. So I feel like Scorsese's films are too long. In a way, like, it's an hour... Hot take! 40, like, 43 for this movie. About halfway through, there's, like, a mini climax going on. And I'm like, oh, it's almost over. Pause. <laughs> no, it's literally less than halfway through. And yeah. there's like a lot of like the gang scenes to really set up how bad these guys are. They're just like, oh, <laughs> the runtime. It still makes sense. I kind of like it because you do get more detail and more time. Like a lot of biopics, 
are an hour and a half and they kind of just rush through the important parts mm-hmm. of people's lives. Whereas with Scorsese, you get more detail. And, and more context and stuff. I mean, like if you made this into a mini series and then fleshed out every little bit, we'd be talking about the greatest piece of mobster uh, media that there is. Yeah, I, something that, that actually kind of kind of frustrates me because otherwise I really like it as far as like filling its runtime without fluff. I do think they could have streamlined from about an hour and a half to two and a half hours. That hour could have been shrunk to a good 20 minutes and we wouldn't really have lost anything. We would have lost a little bit of like the buildup for Ginger going completely when she goes completely insane basically. But a lot of it is just retreading what we already knew. So although, I mean, it's not bad, it's just I could, I would definitely have rather them streamline that part and then expand on Nikki. That, that's why I kind of dislike it because I think they could have done a lot more with that because even though he does kind of serve, like, like you said, it's mostly kind of serving toward Ace and Ginger, but Nick is such a, an obstacle, basically, that keeps popping up. It would have been nice to flesh him out more. And that, I think, would have been a great time to really dive into his thought processes behind it. Because he's also one of the characters whose brains we dip into. Uh, we never actually go into, into Ginger's head. We never hear her inner voice. We only hear the inner voice of the two main characters, of Nick and Ace. And then, I think, in a, like... For half a minute, we hear from one of the buddies of Nikki yeah, when he's like, Nikki's "Oh yeah, right no, there, he's man. Not, yeah, yeah, he's not for Reno. No, it's not that one. So, but um, yeah, main no, thing is. Oh, so. <laughs> Amber oh, was not the right yeah. hand man. <laughs> uh, I think with Scorsese films, it's just one sitting for me it's just a little hard like he's an amazing director and he deserves all the awards and acclaim movies are long man there's no intermission and it's hard for me to like cut a movie and just be like it's my intermission i'm gonna go get up because he keeps the story going Mm -hmm. so you can't just like stop or you feel like you're gonna lose like the atmosphere from the last scene to the next one Uh like the irishman took me four sittings i agree the irishman i felt that was that could have been cut down like that move was so long and it wasn't even it crazy is, long was, but i was like it could have moved have you guys seen somebody went in and deep faked the younger versions of pesci and de niro and it looks way better than what they did in the movie oh yeah <laughs> the actors really showed their age in that film especially the scene where robert de niro beats up the store clerk mm-hmm. the boy boy has his arm like this the entire time just kicking him they're old, man. There's a part in the beginning of the movie where Pesci's like, hey, kid, come over here. And fucking old man Robert De Niro, like, hobbles over there. <laughs> 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 uh, <laughs> to be fair to the effects guys, Scorsese was like, I'm not going to put tracking markers or anything on their face. I'm not going to do anything that's going to help you with this. I'm going to let them act, and you're going to figure it out. And they're like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Here's your challenge. Go. Anyways, off the Irishman. All right. So I really want to talk about themes. I, I, I love themes. Who's surprised? Talk. I know. Now it's Robbie's themes. Okay. So 
Casino, in my opinion, is chock full of themes, and I really like how it leads itself in with the characters and that they really carry the story, so they have a lot of agency. So something I was going to ask you guys is, what do you think about the characters themselves being different shades of greed? Well, Robbie, it sounds like you think that Ace is a pretty greedy guy. But I don't know, from my perspective, he's just a guy who micromanaged a little bit too much, and that was his downfall. Can you say that he's this great tragic character if all, if like the worst he did was be a good businessman? I think that he, the problem with Sam is that he, he comes off more as cold and calculating. So I don't think it's more of like, oh, he's the downtrodden businessman, so much as he makes these active decisions to either deceive or manipulate others to get what he wants. That's why I don't think it's kind of like the, oh, woe is he, but the fact that because of his pride, because of his ambition to take over, he just pushes other people out of his way or manipulates them, like what he did with Ginger when he married her. Yeah. I was going to say he's not above using verbal force like specifically when towards the end of the film when he's trying to get ginger to stop lying to him and he just pesters her about every little thing where were you who were you with give me all the details so i can find that one piece that doesn't add up and i can nail you with that because yeah he needs to have the control and he needs to do that for ace as far as greed goes sorry um no, go I, I believe that he already is a sense of or like has a sense of greed when he takes the job to do like illegal stuff as his profession because he'd rather have the money than like you know do a legitimate business. But his biggest fall down with greed is that he can't let Ginger go. Like he wanted her from the beginning as an object because she was attractive and she was doing a hustle. And he's like, God dang, I love a good hustle. <laughs> so he literally pays her so to marry her. <laughs> But then he can't let her go, even though he knows that she has no feelings for him and is just there for the money when she tells him when they get married. But he can't let her go. Like the time when he goes back and her old boyfriend gets a $2,500 should, or $25,000, he should have just been like, it's over. But yeah. he wanted her so much that this whole, that's how the whole plot of him ruining his life began. Like you said in that line right before... Yes, sir, to marry him. It's like, I've taken the biggest gamble of my life. The only thing I've never been sure about, I proposed to her and pretty much knew it was going to end in tragedy, but I don't know if he knew it was going to be that bad. Well, I don't, I don't even think he was being... Something that I find interesting is that the, the narrators themselves aren't reliable because they're not omniscient. We learned that in the end when Nikki is just about to get killed and he's still continuing his narration. So these narrators don't know what actually ends up happening. It's all from their internal perspective. But I think he was lying even to himself because it's already been established that he doesn't take those risks. And he really didn't. It's not like he asked her to marry him and then she said yes and they went off on this gamble. It was hedged in his favor. He made her have a baby first so that he could have a living, breathing prenup agreement with them. And... These things were so premeditated. It's not one of those like, oh, I'm going to make a gamble on my life. No, this was a choice. So I don't think it's as sinister as it might be the way I'm making it sound as much as it's just he's tricking himself. But again, all these people are flawed. None of these make necessarily good people. 
However, I find it interesting that a lot of that, you know, you guys are kind of saying that Sharon Stone was kind of like, you know, she was trapped in this and she was stuck in this position. In reality, I don't think she was. I think that she actually represents a second type of greed. I think that she represents material greed, like the jewelry she wanted, the gold that she wanted. And she was so obsessed with it that she was willing to give up almost anything else because she did say she didn't want to do this. And then he said, yeah, but you'll get lots of money and power and security. And then she said, okay, well, I'll do it. She's making that active decision. And she's not yeah. a weak character. Agreed. She also knew what it was. But like you said, he manipulated her saying, I will give you all of this stuff. He knew that she could be bought. And so that's the first thing he did when they got married. He's like, here's a million dollars worth of jewels. These are yours. Here's a bunch of fur coats. You know, here's a brand new house. Mm -hmm. Here is $2 million I'm going to keep in a safety deposit box and give you the only key. He trapped her in the lifestyle, you know? Because once you get used to a certain lifestyle, you don't know how to get out from that. Makes sense. I would say she's more gluttonous and greedy because she never thinks about what she's going to do beforehand. She'll just do it on impulse. Like that's why she was a junkie and alcoholic. That's why she kept going back to her ex-boyfriend was because it was an option and it probably gave like her endorphins to just do it. Mm -hmm. It's not like she like fully sought out. Like she was greedy when she was um, stealing from the guy she was helping hustle in the beginning, but she let her impulses ruin her whole life. I could see a good argument for that. But do you think that she's really, I I guess the question I have is, at what point do you think it really flipped for her to where her spiral started as far as her kind of story goes? Because what I find odd is that unlike Sam who started at the bottom, she started at the top. Everyone Hmm. knew her name. She was the best hustler in town. No one had any problems with her. And she had everything she basically needed. None of the cops are bothering her. She was kind of on cloud nine. She got, her hustle was down pat. So do you think that, I think the scene that really flipped for her is the first time she gives Lester the $25,000 in the diner and Mm -hmm. they take Lester out in the parking lot and beat the shit out of him. And she's just pleading and crying, no, don't do that. No. And I think that's really when she just became disillusioned. She's like, "I, I can't have any friends. I can't have my life. I'm stuck here. Mm-hmm. And she becomes so up. paranoid that yeah. it really becomes her versus Ace. And I think that is definitely the, the big tipping point. You could make the case that it's from the very moment that she said, yes, I'll marry you. And then she lies to Ace when she's talking to Lester on the phone on the night of their wedding. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, I don't know, I, I feel like Ace in general for the first third was a pretty good husband and he was pretty understanding through the second third i don't know it's, it seems like he had to make a lot of tough decisions and he's the only one of the three who comes out at the other end of the story you know worse for where but not like not too dead. Bad. yeah not <laughs> dead and still in a place where he can make a lot of money i so, think that there's protagonist bias in ace because honestly He's not that great a husband. Yes, he provided for her, but he bought her things. He didn't give her the... It wasn't like a mutual thing, you know? It wasn't, mm-hmm. I'm going to give you love and respect and 
that kind of stuff. It's, I have money. I know that's what you want. I'm going to buy you stuff to show you my love. That's not the same thing as, you know, an actual relationship. Also, when Ginger first saw her ex just get the hell beat out of him, the scene after was when De Niro first loses his cigarette holder. Because he goes from smoking just with his hand, he gets a, gets the promotion. He starts having a cigarette holder, and even Joe Pesci calls him out on it. After that scene, and Ginger starts going away from him, his life begins to crumble, and in the next scene you see him smoking, he loses a cigarette holder again. He ends up getting it back after the court scene, and he feels like he's back in a secure place. He has it again for a couple scenes where he's meeting with some business executives. And then at the end, he has no more cigarette holder. Do you think a cigarette holder is kind of like his power tie? He Yes. Like that's where he's powerful now. It's his totem for gangsterness. His greed is full. Mm -hmm. And he's at a point where he's finally obtained what he wanted. But then it keeps dropping. Kind of. So I I definitely want to come back to that. But since we mentioned um, Lester and the abusive boyfriend, kind of the, the relationship that Ace has with Ginger, what are your thoughts on the theme of relationship abuse in the story? They're also really strong. They get different shades of it. Uh, what are your guys' thoughts on that as far as like the Lester situation with Ginger or the Ace uh, manipulation uh, situation with Ginger? I think the domestic abuse in this movie is like, well, it's pretty extreme. You know, Nikki very casually hits his wife. Lester is pretty emotionally and he gives Ginger drugs, whatever kind of abuse that is, that it makes Ace look like the good guy because he's just like buying Ginger and and Ginger is like willingly going into this, you know, a tax agreement where she's just going into the next bracket up. And so it makes him look like the good guy in comparison. So I sort of don't, when I was watching it through like the the gangster morality, I was like, you know, he's not that bad. So, for example, the bar scene. And what's important about that one is it's the intro scene where we first meet Nikki, really, and see who he is. And so when that happens, the guy at the bar who insults Ace then turns back around, Nikki picks up a pin and just goes after the dude, just stabbing him in the neck and just kicking him, slamming nice him on the Is this your pin? Oh, man. <laughs> this is a really nice pin. I'm just saying, I don't want you to leave it here. It's It'll look even nice better in your neck. Point pen. <laughs> So while this is happening, we get the shot, and it's intentional. We see Ace in this entire shot in the top right corner. And what is he doing? He's not stopping. He's not looking shocked. He's just watching it dispassionately. And it's not until he starts kicking him in the face while he's down where that seems to be like, oh, that's disrespectful. That Sam's like, oh, oh, wait, you know, you, Nikki, Nikki, what are you doing? And then in his voiceover, you know, he directly – minimizes what Nikki just did. I just wanted to ask the guy why he did it. Nikki just wanted to punch him. Nikki didn't punch him. He just basically slaughtered the man with a pin and he kicked him in the face. So what you're saying is that Ace is the kind of mobster who comes into your store is like, hmm, you got a nice store. It would be a shame if something were to happen. And, oh, absolutely. And then Nikki's the kind of mobster who like dive bombs in through the front window of the store it lands on your floor, and it's like, it'd be a shame if something were to happen to your store like that. And then he jumps out of the under, other window. 100%, but he wouldn't even say it's a shame. He'd just keep stabbing them, like, <laughs> until they didn't exist anymore. Brutal. But 
what's important about this is your is it sets Ace up not as this innocent, oh no, like what am I going to do? Or this guy caught in between this mafia. He knows exactly what he's doing, and so he's making this calculated decision, just like all of his bets. But the important thing is that he's making this calculated decision to get with Ginger, and he doesn't care that she doesn't love him. He knows she doesn't love him, and he might, he says, you know what, I'll be okay with that, because we can just organize it. And what he's doing there is he's making a comparison between them getting together through money and an arranged marriage where, you know, love grows when you're stuck together with someone you can't do anything unless you're with them, which isn't love. And what he wants, he makes it clear, I want to settle down. I want to have a family. I want to have kids. He doesn't say, Ginger, I want you. I want us to love each other. I want us to be together forever. No, he just wants to have his white picket fence, his lady on his arm, and a child because that gives him power and status. So then Ginger runs off to be with Nikki. Is is that because Nikki was the only, it was like, you know, the closest person who would listen to Ginger? Or is there something deeper there? I think it's because Ginger wants, Ginger had already started laying down the tracks that she wanted to off Ace. Very early. When was that? When she very first is crying after the, beat, after the scene where Lester gets beat up. And oh, she's yeah. very first talking with Nick. She says, you know, I have diamonds. I have jewelry. I have $2 million in jewelry. And it's mine. You know, he gave it to me. And Nicky's like, well, there you go. He cares about you. That's not why she's bringing it up. In fact, she stops what she's doing. She stops her crying, takes a breath, and then continues on a different path of kind of like a seduction tactic. What she's wanting is she wants him to kill him so that she doesn't have to deal with it anymore. So this is one of those examples where, in my opinion, Sharon, or, uh, Sharon Stone's character is also a sociopath in her own way and also represents that sort of the greediness because it's all about what she can get out of it. So she's going to use her charms to try and take care or control of people, kind of like how Ace is using his money. And it kind of segues on that into why I think that she really represents greed because of the amount of, because she could have used her own money to pay Lester. She could have took 25 grand out of her bank, which even Sam tells her. You well, she does just, the first time. <laughs> yeah there's no problem exactly Remember, nikki follows her to the bank and sees her take the money out of the account but he never would have done that and never would have known about it if she hadn't raised this problem if she had mm. used her own money to do this no one would have batted an eye she could have said she just went out and bought some coats and i mean he is kind of you know nosy but he probably wouldn't have had the scent of wait why do you need twenty five thousand dollars more than your personal fund it just seems to me to be a little bit like, well, I just want this on top of this so I can take care of everything that I want. It's, again, that material wanting. I don't know. That's just, I, I really think that she represents the more, like, as far as, like I said, with the, with the abuses, she represents more of a emotional abuse in a domestic partnership. Ace is more of a financial abuser, and mm -hmm. he's also a gaslighter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, psychological. And so it's, it's very interesting because you see all these characters representing different bad aspects of a relationship on each other instead of the usual way where it's like, you know, it's happening against this person 
and it really gives, wells up thoughts of, oh, I, comp you know, I sympathize with this person. It's also giving you the same thought of like, wow, these are awful people being awful to each other. But also, do the characters really represent like an overall theme when it's a biopic or like um, the type of film it is where it's sort of like documenting a person's life or is it more just showing the impact they had on that person instead of being like, as many directors like make characters in order to show an emotion, these characters mm -hmm. actually happened. Yeah, I gotta say, as a first time viewing, that was definitely my premonition that, you know, I didn't really pick up on themes. I mean, because everyone's like, you know, a, a, they're in crime. Greed is sort of assumed. Uh, so I, that's kind of how I viewed it, being a, a first time viewer over here. Hi, how you doing? Scorsese <laughs> likes to make movies about flawed characters who are humans, but that are definitely flawed. and. If you look at all of his movies, that's what he, that's what all of his characters are. Which so I, I don't know if it's necessarily. I'm going to take these characters and turn them into different forms of greed, but yeah, they're all greedy. The gangsters. It's all about money. It's Vegas, you know. Vegas mm -hmm. is greed capital. Mm -hmm. And as far as like uh, an example of that, in the movie Goodfellas. That is a Scorsese film, right? All right. Mm -hmm. The main guy is at first very naive. He's getting into this new life and he just sees how well they treat him. Far but back he, as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. Yeah. He, uh, he was so trusting and that's what led to his downfall. Like his whole character was sort of like based around a naivete and being like blind as default, like a sheep following the herd. Like, he is flawed because of that. But he also makes, like, human choices that aren't, like, only related to it. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, so, we've talked about Ace. We've talked about Ginger and kind of their main themes. But how do, how do you guys feel Nikki working his way in here? Because... In my opinion, I think that he's really more of a foil for Ace than Ginger. But he also represents a whole different aspect. He's more of like, you know, the gangster archetype that Scorsese loves. But um, I think if like, Nicky represents anything, he represents chaos. Because, an agent of chaos. Yeah, because they sent Ace out there to run this casino kind of do it legitimately and they just wanted their cut. That's all they cared about, which is why they were kind of reluctant to send Nikki out because they're like, well, he's a little too crazy, but they sent him out anyways. And the first thing he does is he just starts wrecking shop and ruining things for Ace. And that's his whole character is that he's just chaotic and violent and he's going to mess everything up for everyone he touches. He's, yes, he's going to make the money, He's going to be good at crime, but he's also going to do it to the extreme where he's going to get black booked. He's got to change cars six times so that he can lose the FBI, you know, later in the movie. Mm -hmm. I would say, yeah, he represents chaos. Okay. Yeah. He's, 
He definitely acts as a chaotic actor. But what do um I think that he's more he's I think his chaos is more just a direct reflection, kind of a dark reflection of Ace's character arc. Because they both kind of come from the same. Whereas, like I said, Ginger was on top of her game and then we see her fall through the entire movie. Both Nikki and Ace were kind of like, you know, they're they're good at what they do, but they're still, you know, the street players. They're, they're, they're on the street. They're that level instead of being executive or on top. So they both grow and then fall horribly. But it's just interesting to see because they start acting like the other person when they start doing their downfall. So as I was watching, I was kind of trying to track, you know, at what point they made decisions that kind of messed them up and how that works as far as like their normal character arc. And what's interesting is that when Ace decides to take a note out of Nikki's book and be blunt and direct and brash and I'm not going to play the game. I'm firing this guy and it's my decision because I want to and I said so. That becomes his downfall. When Nikki decides, I want that ambition. I want to be the top dog. I want everyone in Vegas to know my name and do what I want. Everyone's going to eat off of my plate, which is a very ace thing to do. His downfall happens because he it bites off more than he can chew. So I find it interesting that once you know they're growing as they kind of develop through what they're doing, they don't really learn much, but like they hone their craft. But the second they kind of switch seats and try the other person's role, it falls apart. But I would pose to you that Nick's downfall or Nikki's downfall. So just so I'm talking about Joe Pesci, not like actual Nick. How dare you? I would oppose to you that Nikki's downfall is pretty much the second he steps foot in Vegas. It seems like his ambition to be on top at the detriment of everyone and everything else is ultimately uh, is something they wanted to do from the very beginning. Uh, and I would think that that feeds into Greg's theory that he is just chaos incarnate because of all of the characters that you would think uh, there's this recurring motif of a hole in the desert. If there's mm-hmm. one uh, character who would be buried in a hole in a desert, you'd think it'd be Nikki, uh, but he doesn't. I think he gets buried in a hole in a cornfield in Indiana. Oh, that's true. What's worse is it's back home, isn't it? It's supposed to be like back where they came from. Yeah. So can you think of anything more chaotic than a, a not poetic ending? Like an ending that you thought would that ended how you thought it would, but not exactly. So I think that is just pure chaos. That's a good point. Yeah, he, he really is a chaotic actor. Um, in that case, like another thing I would pose then, especially with the amount of the amount of chaos that he does, is he acts kind of like I said, like a like gasoline on the fire of Ace and Ginger. Yeah, I'd say so. So Joe Pesci does the same thing in every role though. Like his whole, like s- what you think of when you think of Joe Pesci as an actor is he's a guy who walks in the room and he ruins the stasis because he has all the power and status, even though he's like a little guy. So the whole point of him, like no matter what Ace or Ginger did to be like happy or to find like a good stasis, no matter what, every time Nikki interfered, interfered, the stasis would be ruined. It would, 
so it would make um good conflict for the movie but bad for ace's like well-being in real life oh sweet no it's- yeah, i mean you could just view it as like you know sab and ginger would probably have been fine if it wasn't for nikki Hmm. Well, I disagree. Not in that case, oh, yeah? because she was doing their Lester relationship, without Nikki. Their relationship was doomed from the start. Mm-hmm. And it then she says, worse, "I though. don't love you." It wasn't. She told him right from the start, "I don't love you. This isn't going to work out." But he's like, "I don't care. You're the prize I want." And yeah, yeah. like Nick said, that she was still seeing Lester. She was bound to go back because she's stuck on that terrible thing. She doesn't know how to get out of that. Spiral. <laughs> I, I think it just definitely got worse that Nikki was there. Oh yeah, it, sort of it, like it, the opposite of the Midas touch. It it, it definitely set fire to all of their their plans. Like that that scene where he tells him um, that you know I'm thinking of moving out here. Ace tries every card in his book to get him to think of something else. Like oh dude, you could totally get out here. Oh, it's really hard to be here. Yeah, you got always get followed here. He tried everything to get Nikki to go home. Mm-hmm. He knew it was going to it was going to be a problem, and precisely chaos. Yeah, because uh, the first thing Nick does when he gets there, uh, Sam is like, "I have this legitimate business. This is how it runs." And he's like, "Cool, I'm gonna go do street crime and make my own money." <laughs> <laughs> so right. Right. Yeah. Uh, so a corollary to that, if we're if we're going with that, I would say that Ace is just the epitome of order, and all the problems that order has as a philosophy, where he is so orderly and controlled that the second you throw a wrench into it, it's gonna fall apart because it's so conditional. It's like, well, this is gonna work because 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 this is gonna work. But if you take out three dominoes from the middle of that, the rest of the dominoes aren't gonna fall no matter how nicely you know you had them set. Whereas with Nikki's character being just pure chaos, he could have, th- had, had he not gone overboard, he could have thrived no matter what happened to him. If he gets sent to prison, if he gets sent back home, he could have just continued doing what he was doing because he just liked being a street hustler, basically, and knocking people over as a street thug. So he was happy with that. Whereas with, with Ace, it was definitely like, a, I cannot let this happen or I will fall apart. And he fails, obviously. Well, he failed right off from the bat if he's like order because Nikki asked him for permission. He like, do I have your permission to move out here? And he gave it to him, even though he already said like all these bad things about well, it. Wait, I asked for your permission? I asked for your fucking permission? I didn't ask you for <laughs> fucking shit. <laughs> I love how he flip flops. I think like, he tells like, him, I'm going to come out. Uh, he's asking, do I, but, he's but then he says, really "Do asking. I have your permission?" Do I have your permission? Wink, wink. This is happening. Yeah. <laughs> but if he said no, it was never. It was never on the table. At question. that point, though. Yeah. Yeah. the the last The last thing I had was just some uh, some of the points of like just Scorsese being Scorsese with the spotlight usage and the shots, which mm. is brilliant. Like I loved the lighting effects that they used, where like when when Ace is like saying like I'm in control here. He was lit up like a freaking angel. His body was radiating white light because he was being so self-righteous. 
He yeah. thought of himself as God. <laughs> and it was, it was great. And that was, I think that's right before the blueberry scene. And I was like, cause at first I was like, is there something wrong with my TV? Cause and I was like, no, this is, this is actually the scene. I was like, this is really cool. And then when they're about to, when the guy's cheating and they decide to uh, go take him out and the cops come down and it's like, it's very, it's kind of subtle and then it gets more extreme, but it's subtle that like, no, no, there's spotlights over each of these cops as they slowly get information around the dude. And it's like, Oh, Oh, I see what's happening. So I, I just, I love the, I love the cinematography of it. It was great. And also um, the quote of, I, I know you better than you know yourself was my clincher for Ace being associate, like being controlling. Like, mm. you don't know you, I know you. I know you. <laughs> so that was it. Uh, can we talk about the music for a quick second? Totally. Because, I mean, the music rarely stopped, and I loved that. Like, it was just three hours of, of old school hits. Um, and I, I watched these movies with subtitles because I, I don't want to miss... Uh, the dialogue and so there was a couple times where like the subtitles had the lyric uh, under it and so in like it how well it, the lyrics lined up with what was going on on screen it happened several times uh but two of my favorites i wrote them down uh when uh when ginger is dying in that scene where she's like stumbling down the, the hotel hallway she's dying to uh, house of the rising sun and specifically to the the lyric uh, to wear the old ball and chain and yep. <laughs> it's great the, the, that just made me chuckle like oh there she goes the old ball and chain and then she goes uh and then the second <laughs> oh, there one, she goes <laughs> uh was um when they're playing the the glory of love uh and when ginger and nikki are pretty much solidified their affair and their nefarious dealings uh, and that lyric goes, the third became the Joker of the deck and you ended your letter and closed, please sign my check, you poor fool. And <laughs> nice. moments like those were definitely the the bits that kept me on, on the edge of my seat to be like, ooh, this music, It, I don't think you could separate the music from the movie. I think it is that thoroughly entrenched. Like some movies have a soundtrack but like this movie has a soundtrack, like I don't know. I'd say at least two hours of this movie are set to to classic, what seventies rock. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's an opera basically. The entire movie is an epic opera, and I am down for it. It's great. Yeah, that's why Scorsese is so revered as a filmmaker. Is he knows how to craft a film. Mm-hmm. Everything from casting to music to lighting to editing to camera work also that intro oh my god i love that intro it's great and just uh it's clean it's effective and it's evocative i loved it yeah and him just spinning through the air in the fireball (laughs) which didn't actually happen but we're still gonna have him spin because it's metaphorical and it's great it also makes sense that we could see that change to a dummy while watching it knowing that he doesn't die in that fire Mm mm-hmm well, because we're, we're the too. dummy. Oh, yes. I never thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> Want to hop into recommend and why or not why, depending on your stance. Yep. So I'll just start it off since I brought it up. 
I would recommend this just because it's a really good film. It is long, so I'd probably like take it in chunks and it'd be like something I'd tell people to like watch. And if I'm expecting them to watch it, give them like a month. <laughs> Before you come back and you're like, hey, have you, uh, did you watch it? Yeah, this is a big commitment. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so I guess I'll go next because um, I have a, b- a bit of a take. Uh, this was my first time watching it. And I don't know. I don't really think that I'd end up recommending this in application because in, in my mind, you've either seen this movie or you've heard about it and chosen not to see it or you're, that, you're in that third category like me. Where it's on your list, but it, it's like low in priority. And so, I don't know. I just don't see myself recommending it, especially because it's, 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 it's a really good film but it's, it's a time commitment and it's not, it's not as if, you know, you're recommending a, a good time. You're recommending about an hour of a good time and then something more equatable to a Shakespearean tragedy in the, the second two hours. <laughs> I will disagree with Caleb. I would wholeheartedly recommend it. I think it's all a good time. Surprisingly flies by for most of the runtime. There are that is that, that chunk in the middle that could be a little tighter, but it all works in service of the story. But and I think it leads to uh, a great bombastic ending, where you know everyone's getting whacked and Joe Pesci gets killed in the the cornfield. Spoiler alert! <laughs> and Jenders <laughs> driving all over town in the wrecked car. I I I just think it's a really great movie, and I would recommend it. But like I warned you guys last week, it is long. Prepare yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, obviously, I recommend it. It's one of my favorite <laughs> favorite films. It's it's great. Um, I would say it. I do agree, though, that it is long. It is a time commitment, and it's not something you would want to take lightly. Just because, like this, this is the type of movie that you want to set aside a day so you can watch the movie, get something to eat take a shower or a bath and just think about what you watched. Like a lot of Scorsese films. And I don't know. I just, I really like it, but it's definitely not something I would recommend lightly just because it is, it is kind of a heavy film. Also, it's not for everyone because the, the, the level of F bombs, my God, I was watching it. And then my little sister came in and uh, it was, it was not great. Cause I was like, Oh, maybe I can just turn it down. And every other word for three minutes was fuck, 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 fuck. According to the IMDb trivia, 435 uses of the word fuck used to hold the record <laughs> until Wolf of Wall Street beat it. Wasn't the South Park movie? No, I don't think they beat that. Fuck was. Yeah, I think I, I think I know what Nick's talking about. Didn't the South Park movie get like exactly one under the the limit before it becomes NC-17? I don't know if there's a limit uh, of fucks you can get away with. Because, again, Wolf of Wall Street's rated R, and that has, according to the IMDb trivia, mm-hmm. 600. That's quite mm-hmm. a few. Oh, my. That was a rumor I heard back in middle school. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I heard the same rumor. <laughs> Seems like the kind of rumor you'd hear about the South Park movie. And yep. then it, everyone lost to a documentary called Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> Which cheated. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's cheating. That doesn't count. <laughs> All right, so that was 
Casino 1995, directed by Martin Scorsese. Be sure to follow us on all the social medias and join our Patreon and all that bullshit when we do it. Yeah. And we will see you next week. Bye, everybody. See you. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone.